0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: Okay. Some weeks, not so much. That's all right. At Filmosophy last week, which is the uh, film discretion group that we have here once a month, we looked at the film, the Japanese anime film, critically acclaimed I should say, Princess Mononoke, and how the film challenges our cultural conceptions of good and evil, right and wrong. For example, in the film, there isn't a clear hero or a clear villain, but all the characters contain both qualities of hero and villain, good and evil. The film also juxtaposes agrarian societies against industrialized societies, not to exalt one above the other, not to say that agrarian societies are inherently better because they're closer to nature and simpler and industrialized societies like our own are bad or something like that. No. Nature itself is depicted in the film, not as this idyllic and perfectly harmonious thing that we should practically worship, but nature is shown to be full of conflict, self-destructive tendencies even. Nature is depicted as both beautiful and terrible, both harmonious and chaotic, because it truly is this way. And we are also this way. Recognizing these unresolvable tensions in ourselves, in our communities, even in nature itself, seems to be the central message of the film. It plays on this yin-yang idea that we find throughout Eastern thought. And I bring this up today at the top of my talk because I think it plays into, it relates really well to our series here on mysticism which we're still in. As I've said in weeks past, mysticism is basically defined as oneness. Our oneness with God, the divine, the absolute, ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it, and God's oneness with all things. That's basically what mysticism is. But oneness doesn't mean a world without contradictions, a world without struggle, without lack, without suffering. No, rather the opposite, in fact. To be one with God, I believe, is to understand and embrace the inherent contradictions, even within God. What do I mean by that? Well, consider that God is presented to us, even in the scriptures, as the author of both light and darkness, life and death chaos, and order. Consider texts like Isaiah 45, verse 7, which says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring good things and terrible things. I, the Lord, do all these things. The ancient Hebrews were much more comfortable with these ideas maybe than we are. Or consider Genesis 1.1, the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, It says, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. While the Spirit of God hovered over the deep, then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. There's an Irish poet named Patrick Otama that wrote a great poem about this verse. It goes, Before the beginning, Nobody said, let there be darkness, because it was already there. Nobody said, let there be darkness. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness was there first. See the darkness that is always there. Patrick is playing on this idea in Genesis that darkness existed before the light, and yet God never said, let there be darkness, did he? (laughs) Not like he said, let there be light. The darkness was just there from before the beginning, and yet darkness isn't nothing. Darkness is something. It's the presence of an absence, you might say. Darkness is the presence of the absence of light. We only know what darkness is because we know what light is. So darkness isn't nothing. Darkness is something, and this darkness, this this something existed, we're told, before anything else, and existed with God and perhaps was God. Here we see the inherent contradictory nature of God, and all of creation is full of such contradictions, is it not? Or seeming contradictions, I should say, because what we perceive as contradictions are often just are actually just harmonious systems. For example, there is no inside without an outside, right? No up without a down. No right without a left. No positive electric charge without a negative electric charge. No dissonance in music without consonance or resolution. No joy without sorrow. No life without death. These are just two sides of the same coin. And let's explore that last one for a minute because I think it really gets to the heart of the matter here. Let's talk about life and death, the inherent seeming contradiction between the two. It could be argued that death is the most life-giving thing in the universe. Life completely depends upon death. Think about it. Even if you're a vegan and eat only grains and vegetables... Those plants have to die in order for you to live. They have to die and be consumed and disintegrate in order for you to live. Everything that is alive, everything, can only stay alive if something else dies and is consumed. Be it plant or animal. Or think of it this way, at this time of year in autumn, What happens to the trees? Not so much around here, (laughs) but if you go out further east, where a lot of us grew up, Midwest, wherever, the leaves fall off the trees, fall to the ground and die and disintegrate along with countless other plants. And their death and disintegration replenishes the soil with nutrients so that in the spring, new life might spring forth, right? This is the cycle of life, the cycle of the seasons. And it's a cycle that not only includes death, but is actually spurred on and completely dependent upon death. Imagine if no one ever died, no human being in all of history, how long would it take for us to run out of resources and livable space? As a parent, I realized that in a very real way, I and my generation must die so that my daughters and their generation might live and not just live, but thrive and flourish. If my generation lived forever, it would diminish the quality of life of my children and their children and so on and so forth. So in a very real way, I must die so that my children might live. This is the way it's always been. And in a way, I actually live on in them. My genetic code, my traits, even my ideas, my values live on in them to a great degree. And their traits and values will live on in their children and so on and so forth. So in a way, you you might say we are immortal. And in a way, everything is actually. The law of the conservation of energy tells us that energy can be create, cannot be created or destroyed in the universe. It just simply changes form. In other words, everything that exists always has and always will in some form, in some way. And maybe this means there is an afterlife of sorts walk with me through this here for a minute this morning i suspect if there is an afterlife it's not like the one that i was raised on you know in sunday school streets of gold and mansions you know one of the best theories about the afterlife i've heard involves using the analogy of a radio or a cell phone think of our brains as like the receiver in our phone that downloads the internet complete with all of its videos and pictures and texts, which is kind of magical when you think about it. But if your cell phone dies or gets broken, the signal doesn't die, right? No, it's, it's always right here in the ether around us, even in us, these radio waves, these pass right through us, they're everywhere. We're swimming in it. The data stream doesn't die if your phone dies. It's always right there. Our brain is the receiver in this analogy, downloading consciousness from the cosmic consciousness that's all around us all the time. You are not so so much the phone in this analogy, but the data stream itself, the signal itself. Our minds, our bodies download this signal and manifest it in a certain way, which can be understood as our personality, our subjectivity our individual identity, our experiences, our memories. But when our body dies, and it will, and disintegrates, so does this particular manifestation of the signal. But the signal doesn't die. It never dies. And that's what we really are, perhaps, at our most fundamental level, pure consciousness, pure mind. Pure awareness. This is what we are, I think. And this is like the law of the conservation of energy. Like energy, perhaps mine can never be created nor destroyed in the universe. It just simply is always changing form, manifesting as matter, space, time, you and me. It's incarnating, you might say, countless ways. In that way, yeah, our, our particular identity, doesn't go on forever. Aaron Michael Van Voorhis does not go on forever, perhaps. And his personality will die with him. But what makes me really me, that will never die. That which I am ultimately a manifestation of, this cosmic mind, pure awareness, pure mind, this goes on forever, of which I am always and eternally a part of, and so are you. But the ego, my personality, Aaron Michael Van Voorhis, his identity, this manifestation of cosmic consciousness. Yeah, that that comes to an end, perhaps. But who I really am, that's preserved, perhaps. And this is where I'm at on this matter. That's probably the best theory I've heard so far for the afterlife. And I'm not saying I'm certain of it, because I'm not. How could I be? but I find it plausible and invigorating. And yet death remains. Death remains. Death, at least this body's death, this person's death is quite real. And it's the other side of the coin of life. It's just the other side of the coin. And here again, we see how death is perhaps the most life-giving thing in the world. I don't say all this to make light of or diminish the grief and the pain of losing a loved one. That's for real. Death is real. Loss is very real. Rather, I say all this as a way of understanding and embracing the balance between seemingly contradictory things that are at the very heart of who we are and the very heart of nature itself and thereby perhaps even at the very heart of God. And this begs a question, what if we viewed death differently than the completely negative way we've been raised to? We've been raised to fear death, have we not? We've been taught to fear death so much in our culture, to be repulsed by it, and to see it as the ultimate enemy. And yet there are many cultures, both past and present, that I've always had a more positive outlook on death. I love how Richard Alpert, a.k.a. Ram Dass, he's dead now, the way he put it, and he was a, a Hindu mystic. He said, death does not need to be treated like an enemy for us to delight in life. I love that. Death does not need to be treated like an enemy for us to delight in life. But we've been taught the exact opposite, haven't we? in the Western Christian tradition that death must be treated. It must be treated like an enemy for us to find peace and and to delight in life, for us to truly delight in life, we're told. Death must be denied, must be ignored. It must, must be completely done away with, if not in this life, then certainly in the next. And all this so that we can enjoy life now, we're told. But perhaps the way to truly delight in life is by embracing death as the other side of the coin of life. And by that, I don't mean to be suicidal. This isn't nihilism. But to see death as the other side of the coin. You know, maybe death can actually be a life enhancer when you think about it. Maybe death can enhance life. Something It can be something that reminds us that our time here is short, and so let's make the most of it. Let's really give ourselves over to life and invest in it, knowing that it's a gift. It doesn't last forever. Not this iteration, at least. Maybe death can actually be something that gives life its luster, something that beautifies life, that enhances its value, its scarcity. These are just some different ways of thinking about the apparent contradictions. I say apparent contradictions between life and death. And how it's not really a contradiction at all. And I think it helps us to remember that the God we find revealed in both nature and in our sacred text is a God of such contradictions, a God of both light and darkness, a God of both life and death. God of both chaos and order. The mystics have always understood this. The mystics have always gotten this and spoken about it. They've always understood that these seeming contradictions are not really contradictions at all, and that there is a kind of harmony, oneness, and balance to these things. And yet the mainstream church has often recoiled, (laughs) from such ideas because they undermine and challenge our neat and tidy conceptions of God. They undermine and challenge our neat and tidy theologies and creeds and doctrines that grant us simplicity and certainty and and, and an escape from the real world, which is of course, full of contradiction, uncertainty, difficulties and complexities. That's the way the world really is and religion has often been an escape from that, a way of covering it over with anxiety. And yet the mystics show us that it's through the radical embrace of the contradictory nature of all things that we can find a kind of oneness and wholeness. Not a oneness and a wholeness without contradiction, but a oneness and wholeness with contradiction. This, to me, is part of the meaning of the cross, which is a symbol of contradiction if there ever was one. I mean, think about the cross itself. It's basically an X, two intersecting, conflicting lines. But what could be more contradictory than a crucified God? What could be more contradictory than a God who is humiliated and murdered by mere mortals? What is more contradictory than a God who is born a peasant and dies a criminal? What could be more contradictory than a God who doubts and despairs of God and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is the ultimate contradiction. Paul describes it as nonsense and foolishness. The cross is the ultimate contradiction and is therefore, according to the mystics, the ultimate revelation of the contradictory nature of God and the cosmos. At the cross, God and the cosmos are revealed to be full of contradictions. But what appears to us at first blush as contradiction and disorder gives way to balance and harmony upon closer inspection. For it's at the cross that we realize that this God of contradiction is one with this world of contradiction and us. In the body of the suffering and crucified God, we find a God who is truly with us and in solidarity with us in our sufferings and in life and the world as it really is. In all of its precariousness, in all of its complexities and difficulties, here is God, here is Christ. Here is the divine saturating the very fabric of our world and reality if we choose to see it and embrace it, live into it. And in this way, I argue we should understand the resurrection. The resurrection is the other side of the coin from the crucifixion or death. There's many different ways of understanding the resurrection. One of the ways I like perhaps most, is that it's through the radical embrace of the contradictory nature of life that we find serenity, we find divinity, we find new life. It's by undergoing a crucifixion or dying to our wish dream for a world without contradiction and difficulties. It's in the death of that wish dream that we find serenity and new life a kind of everlasting life perhaps even or an abundant life to invoke the biblical rhetoric there's something kind of zen about this i hope you for those of you who are familiar with buddhism there's something kind of zen about this there's a there's a reason why these ideas are not just found in mystical christianity but in many other spiritual traditions and religions judaism mystical judaism within islam and of course within Hinduism and Buddhism and various indigenous religions, you find these ideas in all of these traditions. Is this idea of of radical acceptance, life in the world as it really is, and the inherent contradictions to life in the world. In all these traditions, you find this idea of setting aside the anxious mind and accepting reality in all of its contradictions and difficulties, and thereby finding serenity in the aftermath, finding new life, finding oneness with God, the absolute, with the God of both light and darkness, life and death. And as Christians, we have a tradition That I think embodies this idea as good as any, as good as any idea could possibly embody this, as any practice could possibly embody this idea, the Lord's Supper. For it's here we gather around the crucified body of God. Think about it. This is my body, this is my blood, says Jesus. This is the crucified body of God, the corpse of God. We gather around it. And we internalize it consume it as a statement of faith, a spiritual practice that reminds us, that tells us that to be one with God is to embrace the death of God so that the life of God might be reborn in you and me. Let us receive this now. Each episode of The Central
0: Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here is this week's unedited discussion.
1: Questions? Comments? Um, Anybody, anything pertaining to my talk today? Embracing the God of Contradiction? Yeah, Marcia, um, you okay using the mic or reluctantly maybe?
2: (laughs) Could you help, because a lot of the ideas you shared to you apparently are obvious, to me it was like, wow. Hmm. So, how would you liken the violence that we see on the radio, and hopefully don't personally know about, how do you liken that in your analogy of life and death?
1: Uh, You're asking me, how do I explain the violence in the news that we see, and liken that to uh, my understanding of the inherent contradictions between life and death? Wow. well, I guess I wouldn't liken it that much. <laughs> you know i I certainly understand that peace and conflict are two sides of the same coin. How could they not be? We only know peace because we know conflict. We know conflict because we know peace. Maybe that's all I can really say about it. Um I think the attempt to moralize violence and say, "Oh, well, we just need to accept it and just, you know, it's okay. No, it's not okay. You know, that's not the point of embracing the contradictions isn't to overly put value judgments on things and say, well, this makes violence OK. Well, no, it's not OK. That's not the point. But there is something to be said about, you only know peace because you only know conflict. You only know conflict because you only know peace. We only know joy because we know sorrow. And we only know sorrow because we know joy. Um. You know, again, this isn't to um, justify sorrow or justify violence in any way. Don't hear it like that. Yeah. That's the best I can do. <laughs> but that's a good question. Yeah. Somebody else? I'm, I'm curious to hear maybe um, about the ways, the messages you were raised with pertaining to death in the afterlife. What were the messages you were raised with about that? And maybe how has... Your view, my book is coming up. Have your views on death and the afterlife changed over the years? Yeah, Emily.
3: Uh, that basically this life that we're living isn't as important as the afterlife, and that you just do what you need to do to get there because that's where real justice lives.
1: Life begins when you're dead, we were taught. This
3: right now, pssst. yeah.
1: Life begins really, really but again.
3: this determines whether you get the best life after you're dead. So it's like whatever you do here equals if you get to go there, which is where all the controlling manipulation, guilt, and shame come from.
1: The sales pitch. You gotta come <laughs> to this church. You gotta you gotta believe our stuff. Tithe, you gotta tithe. Or else. Or
2: you know, you don't get in.
1: Dead. Yeah. Yeah snake oil. Yeah, go ahead, Uh, Ryan.
0: Yeah, actually adding on to that, um, my wife has been reading God as a black woman, and sharing it with me, and I'm hopefully going to read it soon. Uh, But she talks about that too. And we were just talking about that the other day that like, um, in the book, they say Father Sky God, as the old conception of what God was, you know, and this idea that like, it's rather convenient that all of the uh, either punishment or reward is in the most unprovable place for humans like oh it's convenient that like the the scantron when you turn it in the only way to verify if the whole test was even real is something no one can prove like that's convenient
1: yeah no I, I feel the consternation there and the incredulity and the sense of being uh, we might be being lied to and manipulated here. Yeah, yeah. Marsha, go ahead. No, no. Oh, they just hit oh, the That's cool, here, I'll do it. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea, that's funny. Yeah, good point, Ryan. Yeah, um, and we covered that book, by the way, last year. Uh, we did a, a book club here. Great book, yeah. Um, other thoughts, questions, remarks? What were the messages you were raised on, with death and dying and how, it, or the afterlife? How has that changed? Yeah, Ryan. We just want you to use the mic mostly for the people online and the podcast. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I did. um, I wrote some things down while you were talking. Cool. I guess I'm trying to make sure I'm understanding correctly. Sure. um, Because I don't know if I always do. Um, But I wrote down a contradiction is the place where our misunderstanding of a harmonious system becomes the most apparent. And that's why it's revelatory. It's like the moment that we realize we really don't understand everything going on here, and I think that ties into what you were saying a few weeks back—that we don't know who God is; we just know who God is not.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm agreeing with myself. I, I like <laughs> that. Sounds that's that's yeah. No, I appreciate that, and uh, that's where my thinking is right now on it. Ask me tomorrow, maybe it'll change. But that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, Emily.
3: Uh, it reminds me of the conversation we had at Brew Church when yeah. If you choose to be gay in this life, then you get to go to hell on the next one.
1: I, well, <clears throat> that's what we've been told, right? Right. Yeah. So
3: it's like you, people grapple so hardcore in this life to try to do everything right. But it's like even the people who do do everything right, like, or they do like more rituals than the next person, they still have things where they're like, oh, well, I feel like my aunt one time said to me, she's like, I feel like, Um, I feel like I'm going to go to hell because I'm not out spreading the good news. Like everyone has the thing where they're like, Oh, I'm going to go to hell because of this. But why is that the confines that we live in here that doesn't make this life very enjoyable. It doesn't bring joy to feel deep in your soul that you're going to burn in a fiery death and just live in it for eternity. It's like, how is this, How is that helpful? How is that God is love? You're protected. Love thy neighbor. Like, how is this what they're teaching? And it's like the contradiction between what they tell you in church every Sunday to how you then feel leaving. Sometimes it feels good because you're like, oh, it's a happy sermon. But then, like, you go home and you realize, like, all the crap that you're doing that you're like, oh, but I'm going to hell because of this. And I have to try to do this better than your poor children are then also dealing with your trauma from that. And then it just becomes like this cyclical situation, which hopefully we're all breaking by coming here.
1: You are adequately pointing out the unhealthy nature of the way you were raised and the way so many of us were. You're absolutely right. It's it's a worldview born out of fear and not love. One that ironically is pretty nihilistic as much as it appears or claims to be rejecting nihilism is actually pretty nihilistic yeah go ahead
2: i came from a very different background totally opposite so my view is that when you die you turn back to stardust and you float back into the universe and in that way you have joy and serenity and peace
1: beautiful I dig it, thank you. Good stuff. Anybody else wanna share their journey down down this road, death and afterlife? (laughs) It's a heavy topic. This might conclude our series on mysticism, I don't know. We'll see how I feel this week. (laughs) Um, Yeah, good stuff everybody. Yeah, Ryan, sure. Got something else? Yeah, <laughs> three of you should. Have. There you go. It's all right. Uh, it's
0: all I guess good. I have a question. Yeah, man. Um, well, so at other churches we've talked a lot about the idea of scarcity and how that's a very like Western concept. Uh that's this idea that the world is scarce, that resources are limited, and that you have to like shore up your resources so that you can control and you can all these things you know and that like jesus kind of destroys this idea of scarcity by being divine in the world um and with that i've always been introduced to the idea of scarcity as a like what they call post fall like after sin entered the world then there's this idea of death and scarcity and things end and you know resources are finite and things like that um, and I think as humans, we thrive under limits. That's when humans are creative. So, cause that's all we know. But I guess the idea that was always taught to me was that we are not like the true humans right now. We are like corrupted the same way the whole world is with scarcity. And so like, it's hard for us to conceive of a world without scarcity, but that's what God offers. And that's very, I think, antithetical to the idea that God is like life and death and you know works in these contradictions i guess i'm curious to know like how those two ideas reconcile or if they do you know
1: yeah if i understand you correctly you know i guess that word scarcity there's there's natural scarcity and then there's human imposed forms of scarcity and you think about capitalism human imposed forms of scarcity right uh, i need to make seven million dollars uh, you can only make fifty thousand a year because I have to make seven million. Yeah, you know, like the CEO of a company. Right. That's like uh, human-imposed scarcity, which is unjust. Right. This right. idea of you know I need more, so that means you have to have less. And then there's natural scarcity. You know, the the world is only so big. There's only so much fresh water. Uh, there's only so much livable space we can survive on, you know, or or there's only so much space that we can plant wheat and corn and grow things. Out. There's there's such thing as natural scarcity, right? If nobody ever died and, you know, there's a hundred billion people living on earth, just frankly, wouldn't be enough food. You know, so there is scarcity, right? But I think, I hear you criticizing this idea of of human-imposed forms of scarcity. I think Jesus was criticizing human-imposed forms of scarcity, you know, uh, that the rich, you know, were imposing upon the poor, um, still are, right? So I hear that critique. Um, but as far you 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 made it parallel with this idea of contra- embracing a world of contradictions, and that's where I kind of got lost. Did you want to elucidate that? Or
0: I guess like the idea of uh, that I was always taught is that before sin entered the world, you could plant infinite crops because uh-huh. the world was
1: infinite. Oh, I see what you're saying. We, that was the myth. Um yeah. Y- yeah, yeah, that's that's the myth. You're right. That's the idea that you know we were all immortal and there, there was no scarcity that, you know, like Jesus feeding the five thousand, you know, was just constantly <laughs> there's no scarcity, you know. Um, yeah, that's 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 the mythological world. But the reality is that we live in a world that is finite and we are finite and temporal, and scarcity is real. And we only live for 70, 80, 90 years if we're lucky back then. It's like people live to thirty-five, you know, um, and and for me the message, the existentially the most meaningful message of the gospel, existentially, not politically, but there's, the gospel contains a very important and powerful political message that we talk about here all the time: love your neighbor as yourself, justice, caring for the least of But existentially, for me, the idea of the crucified God is this: is this unconscious way the ancients i think we're talking about this god who meets us in the scarcity and the brokenness of this life in this world and in that way shows us that we can find a kind of i think divinity to this life in this world uh and and this radical embrace of life um in the midst of death infinitude and temporality um and that's that's something i talk about here often and you know the the people that i listen to and the books that I read coming out of the radical theology tradition are often about. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I would answer your question. I don't know Thank
2: that you. Works. That's a really good answer. Oh, okay, cool.
1: Cool. Yeah, thanks. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, Marsha. Oh, see so you're getting the mic back. <laughs> Just the side today. Nobody from here. All right. Just the side.
2: I'm wondering whether now having heard your, your sermon and this discussion, how might you, what are the many ways you might interpret the the story of Jesus providing uh, all the a meal of fish for everyone? You know, yeah, that
1: story, the feeding of the five thousand is a mimetic a mimicking of the Exodus narrative where God miraculously provided for the Israelites in the desert. That's what that story was about. Like so many of Jesus's stories. Uh, It was a reenactment of the exodus narrative to, uh, there were literary devices meant probably to communicate to the original audience, Hey, this Jesus guy, he is the fulfillment of the exodus. He's Moses reincarnated. Uh, Therefore he's leading a new exodus, not an exodus from a literal geographic land like Egypt into the land of Canaan, not a geographic physical exodus, but a spiritual exodus, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of greed and selfishness and oppression, and into a kingdom of love and light and justice and peace with, with others and care. That's that's what those stories. So the feeding of the five thousand is again a reenactment of God providing miraculously, you know it's 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 a myth, it's a legend, but it's it's a reenactment of that story from the Exodus narrative to put Jesus into the Exodus story. I know the, the ancients were brilliant. I mean, the, the, that, those stories, our gospels, our sacred text, it's absolutely wonderful and complex and reveals the ancients' capacity for abstract thought and um, deep mystical, I think, um, just spiritual commitments and, and ideas. I, I, am all, I am constantly taken aback by what I read. In that in that book. There's a reason why it's considered one of the greatest books of you know the world. It's, it's an incredible piece of literature. Anyway, does that answer your question? All right. Somebody else. I finished my talk a little early today. Okie doke. Well, let's finish as we always do by saying this benediction together as a way of centering ourselves as we depart. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. All right. Amen. Go in peace.